four members of Hardwick talking about LGBT matters as members of the LGBT community and allies. I'm Bree and I identify as pansexual and my pronouns are she and her. I'm Emma, my pronouns are she and her and I'm an ally. I'm Cameron, um, I'm a gay man and my pronouns are he and him. I'm Carl, I'm also a gay man and again my pronouns are he and him. So I think we were going to talk first of all about our experience of LGBT and being at the bar, so of LGBT barristers ourselves or being an ally to them. Cam, you've joined the bar most recently, so what's your perception, the up-to-date perception? Well actually when I was thinking about this podcast, I actually went back through um, and kind of reflected um, on my time as a pupil because, um, Brie, you know, I was your pupil um, for a while during Sorry pupilage. Sorry about that. Um, and it actually wasn't until pupilage that I decided to come out to my family um, in March 2016 um, whilst I was Brie's pupil. And it was only when I was really comfortable with being my authentic self at work. Um, I was out from day one of being in chambers. And whilst I felt that I had a safety net to fall back onto, that if it all went wrong with my family and all of a sudden I was disowned by everyone, um, that I would still have my life in London to fall back on and my life at Hardwick. And I decided then to make the decision to come out. And I still remember the day sitting down with Bree before I went for the weekend and sending messages. The first person I messaged, and I read through the message today. I remember it too, Cam. Big sigh of relief. Everything went fine. I can come back to London and live my life now. But actually, I think it just demonstrated that really it was only because I'd been so welcomed and because I could be who I am at work that I actually felt I could go home and tell everyone else who I was as well. Brilliant. Well, I came out when I had my first relationship with a woman who was in Chambers as well. (laughs) just to complicate things, in 1990. And that was difficult. And I think one of the really difficult things about it was that we were both in chambers. We had very different assumptions about how people would react. I mean, it was the 19... It was 1990, so a very different time in any event. I wasn't born. (laughs) Thanks for that, Cam. (laughs) can always rely on him to upset me. No, seriously. It was a very different time, and a lot of people were homophobic, and there wasn't the sense of it being unacceptable in the same way, and there weren't the same legal protections. And I came from a family that was absolutely not homophobic. My parents had always had gay friends. So my presumption was always that people would be fine unless there was something to suggest otherwise. And my partner's presumption, coming from a homophobic family, was actually, no, (laughs) people would not be fine and it would be the end of our careers. So negotiating our way through telling people and finding people who were supportive, who were influential in chambers, who made us feel safe enough to then be out generally in chambers was quite a complicated process. But I have to say, the clerk's room as they were then, rather than the practice team, the clerk's room sussed us out first. And they were incredibly supportive, which at the time was a huge surprise to me. I think often there are actually very good stories at the bar. You wouldn't expect it necessarily, but often there are. That was my big surprise. It was certainly that there were 
were a lot more positive stories and it was only when I was inside the community in the bar that I realised there were a lot of positive stories because the difficulty is when you're looking from the outside in it's hard to find those stories um, so that's why for me it, it took until I was a pupil and at the bar before I decided to make that decision. Although I think we all know it's not the same for everyone and certainly I've heard some very negative stories from other people and know of a number of people who don't feel able to be out at the bar although one often wonders in fact if the rest of their chambers knew whether they would actually get some support. As an ally, Emma, do you have any thoughts around this? Well, my background is that I I grew up in Australia, in Queensland, in fact, and it was illegal to be homosexual for most of my childhood. And it has literally never made sense to me. I've had the enormous privilege of, uh, in those early years, being the first person that one of my best friends came out to, literally the first person. And that is, it is such an honour, and I have carried that honour throughout my, my life. I think being an ally is the easiest job in the world. It really is just being myself. If someone is going to say something homophobic or transphobic, I'm merely going to state my opinion on that matter. And as a barrister, it is really not hard for me to state my opinion. <laughs> so I, I, don't, um, I don't really have an awful lot of active things to do. I, I think my role is largely about listening and learning and trying to support. And sometimes it's about withdrawing and allowing a conversation that needs to happen without me to to happen and sometimes it is about intervening. On the whole at the bar I see a lot of positive stories. I wonder if the negative stories are simply not visible and I know from discussions with Brie that visibility is possibly one of the biggest challenges for the LGBT plus community. Absolutely. But I would think, Emma, you may be downplaying the significance of allies. I'm not sure I'm in a position to comment. (laughs) Well, I know last year, a group from Chambers went to MIPIM, which is the International Property Conference in Cannes. that has all sorts of appalling associations. The property industry having historically had lots of people who were very involved in things like the President's Club. Um, And... Our chief exec produced lanyards for everyone to use to carry their cards in when we were doing all the networking and collecting cards from other people. And without saying anything, had produced Hardwick lanyards that had rainbow on them. And not one of the 14 colleagues from Chambers, most of whom were straight, batted an eyelid at walking around that particular conference with a rainbow lanyard around their neck. And for me, the impact that had on me of seeing my colleague happy to do that without even thinking about it was huge, absolutely huge. Well, as Brie will know, as everyone around this table will know, I wear my keys around my neck, mostly because I can't be trusted to not lose keys unless they are physically attached to me. And I wear them on a rainbow shoelace and I'm extremely proud to do so. Um, and would invite questions from anyone who would be interested in challenging in challenging that. But I'm, I'm not sure. I, it surprises me that anyone is surprised at this. And I, I think that's <laughs> been one of the biggest things I've learned in the last five years. I never realised the homophobia that can exist because I think homophobia can be a little bit invisible and a bit tacit and unless we are looking out for it we when I say we I mean we allies are looking out for it it can be easy for us to miss. Carl do you have any thoughts? Yeah um, no, I agree with all of that and my story is is one of um, relative ease with which um, 
A, I came to terms with it, and B, others treated me. I'd come from university not out in London and, and being particularly scared at that process of existing friends. So coming to the bar, I'd made a conscious decision to, to leave London, go to Nottingham, and re-present myself as someone entirely different to others, um, telling them that I was this fabulous gay man. I wasn't. It was exactly the same as I'd been previously, but in, <laughs> but in my head... <laughs> yes. <laughs> In my head, I thought I'd become this. Of course I wasn't, and I was simply the person that I'd always wanted to be and always was. But when I came back to London, um, I think there was still that trepidation and fear at the start of pupillage that being in a relatively traditional set at the time, that I wouldn't be accepted. There were some conservative people, there were some Christians there. And I, uh, unnecessarily, I, I, I was fearful of that. I, I needn't have worried. And Chambers needn't have worried. Um, it, it ended up being that both pupils were, were gay. I don't think anyone in Chambers realised that they'd uh, taken on uh, two gay pupils. But I had that support network, and it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that A, nobody cared, B, they were far more interested in us as people, uh, and C, if anything, we just added to the environment of, of, of everyone else. So I have positive experiences, but again, I, I know that some people don't. I think that what is important is that you tell these positive experiences so that anyone else listening who uh, might not be out yet or might have thoughts, um, those fears, that they can know that there are those positive experiences. You can't tell them too, too many times. Um, to reassure people. Absolutely. So we're going to talk a bit about, LG, as it's LGBT History Month, legal history and how much things have changed. And I'm obviously the old one in the room. So if we go back to my childhood, I mean, I was actually four when homosexuality was partially decriminalised. I mean, that's celebrated, the Sexual Offences Act 1967, just really put my age out there. Although, in fact, the truth was that more gay men were prosecuted after that legislation came in than before, because whilst the law pushed forward, the legal processes, the police force, the prosecuting authorities actually made use of the law that was still there to uh, make life even harder for gay men than it was before. But we've come on a long way since then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's just strange for me being the one of the group that has the benefit of significant youth. Um, <laughs> Here he goes. Number two, number two, Cameron. <laughs> Leave it at that. Um, in that it just seems completely alien to me growing up that it would ever have been illegal it's still even even when I was growing up in in the late 90s and, and early noughties um at school um there was still knowing truly inclusive um education we weren't taught about same-sex couples there was very generic sex education for everyone at school um I went to a very very normal secondary school in the northeast um and therefore whilst we weren't taught that it was wrong um we weren't actively taught that there was anything other than the normal family unit that we saw around the communities that we lived in which were predominantly white um, straight communities and um, where there was a husband wife and a couple of children um, anything else was unusual um, where I was from and of course clause 28 meant it was positively illegal for schools and other public bodies to in inverted commas promote uh, any pretend families or lifestyles other than heterosexuality. So that, that was a very toxic environment where, when that was brought in by Maggie Thatcher's government, teachers who were gay suddenly felt they couldn't be themselves at school. They were very much at risk of being said to be in breach of the legislation just for being themselves. And suddenly 
teachers, gay or not, faced with a child struggling with their sexual orientation, couldn't really talk to them about it in any way. I'm interested in what it was... I wasn't in this country while Clause 28 was in action. What was it like for you? How, how did you feel that it legitimised homophobia more broadly than within? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew that my family and that my circle around me, the people I was friendly with and my colleagues were accepting, but that the state was not, that huge sections of the country that I live in and I'm very happy to live in was not, and that considered me to be, and my relationship, the love of my life, turned out not to be the love of my life, but I found I did find her eventually, you know, that all of that was not acceptable and some people utterly disgusted by it. And actually that sense of being a source of disgust to people for simply loving the person you love is really quite, for me, a, a very difficult thing to come to terms with. And having people be able to point to a bit of statute and say, there, see? Yeah. That's, that legitimises our feeling. And it's amazing how much it's changed. I can remember that I was actually out of the country with Paula when the Civil Partnership Act came into effect on the, I think it was the 21st of December 2005. We were out of the country. And I woke up that morning and I cried spontaneously with joy, just thinking I can't believe that it matters that much to me, but the sense that my state now says our relationship is legitimate, is of equal value to anyone else's relationship, was a huge thing. It made a huge difference mm. to me. I don't know if legal change has made a difference to either of you in that way. It, 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 to me, it did. I mean, growing up, going to school in the late 80s, early 90s, I didn't have the, the wherewithal to realise what was going on. And looking back now, I, I kind of do, in terms of who I thought was hot and so on um, <laughs> but at the time I didn't and my worldview was obviously framed by the institutions the legal framework that that we now know was was just not right and for me um, it, it was not just that the legal framework but the societal and cultural impact um, that other factors had so in the late 80s early 90s you had the you know the AIDS adverts which oh, yeah. for me made me put myself in a box if nothing else, legitimised by the fact of Section 28 uh, and, and the fact that it wasn't talked about, made me run away from it even more. I can't think of anything worse as a, uh, for a, a young child to have that fear mm. drilled into you. So, and that stigma. Yeah, and yeah. that stigma. So I, 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 for me, it's the, it's, the, it's the fact that that existed alongside a framework which gave that legitimacy. So it doesn't surprise me at all that your story of crying on, on that day um, happened because it, absolutely, why, why, why on earth wouldn't you have that expression once, you, once that's taken away? How far along the process do you think we are, Bree, in terms of where we were, say, in the, the early 90s when you... Gosh, um, I think it's interesting because it's not a linear process, is it? And actually, I look back at Clause 28 and think in many ways that did us a favour. Um, because, as I said, the 1967 Act supposedly was a decriminalisation, but it was only partial and on the ground in real terms. Things got worse for gay men. And, of course, 
those of us in lesbian relationships didn't really exist anyway. So Clause 28 was the thing that really galvanised the LGBT community and its allies and was the start of the real push forward. And we've had a period of tremendous change and it's not complete, it's not done by any stretch. And I think at the moment we're at a tipping point where there is a lot of pressure to roll back a lot of those rights. The job is legally... I think nearly there and it's the hearts and minds that remain the work to do in particular sections of our society particular communities but we have to take the the sense at the moment that rights might be rolled back and understand that you must always be vigilant of those that have been won even if you feel you've reached a point but I think we're nearly there but it's actually a critical time at the moment completely and what do you think in terms of what we can do as a profession in terms of ensuring that anybody joining the profession or in the profession feels as comfortable as possible? What are the next big things that we can do as a profession? Um, I think what Emma was talking about earlier, visibility, looking to our allies who in huge numbers have been with us every step of the way in all the battles to be prepared to be the voice in the room when we're not to say hang on a minute I don't find that acceptable and talk to people about that yeah being vocal being visible I agree because I think and obviously Brie and I um, are members of Free Bar and um, help organise um, the activities of Free Bar. And one of the big achievements, I think, of the last year or so has been persuading um, our regulators to remove and actually acknowledge us in statistics and that the diversity statistics we now collect can in- include statistics in relation to members of the LGBT community. Um, it was previously... More, e- previously. more easily. Uh, more easily, yes. Theoretically, yes. they could before. Um, it was previously positioned that the effective position was if somebody objected to statistics being shared that nobody could share the statistics in chambers so it, it might provide a better picture um, for the bar because the problem is it's it's been a, a true lack of visibility and I realized in some ways I was a bit of a hypocrite when I joined the bar because I was looking at a lot of profiles around at the bar and predominantly I would see white men with good educations and I would just instantly assume that meant pale male and stale and straight but then I looked back when I joined the bar and I thought oh wow my profile is purely a white man with a good education um, and it doesn't show anything else about my personality or who I am, what else I get involved with. So it was really for me to put little indicators on my profile and and Chambers website to ensure we are being visibly inclusive, to say I'm a member of Freehold and Free Bar um, and that I do other CSR activities. But those little things that can anyone looking through a website, a potential pupil or student or member of the bar, can see that we are an inclusive environment. Any other thoughts as to what we should be doing, guys? Well, from... Sorry, from an ally's perspective, I think the first thing to do is accept that you are an ally. Most people probably are, certainly most people I know probably are, but don't necessarily identify themselves as being so. Once you identify yourself as being an ally, you may be more inclined to vocalise when transphobic or homophobic things are said. The other thing I think that allies can do is... Uh, attend events. There are very few events that are not open to allies um, that are directed at the LGBT plus community. I've always felt very, very welcome at events, lectures, gatherings, networking, um, and people are very keen that people from outside the community have come to hear what they have to say and understand. And I suppose the third thing is to ask and to be prepared to adapt 
So asking polite, open questions and then being prepared to reflect on that and see if you can improve what you are doing. That is not always easy, to be honest with you, because I make mistakes. I've, I've made mistakes. But with generosity from my LGBT plus friends, I've learned to adapt and improve. And it's, all, it's always a process. So that's what I would say to, to allies. I think that's very good advice, Emma. And actually, it goes for all of us. I'm very aware that within the LGBT community itself, there are you know, mistakes made. I'm not trans. I have to look, listen, learn, and know that I don't understand fully the experience in the same way. I'm also a very different generation to Cam and Carl, whose experience is therefore not the same as mine. And so we all need to be being open, respectful and listening to other people. No, I think absolutely. I think um, it is a scary world. And um, I think a lot of people I come across that don't identify as LGBT plus um, think that everyone within the community um, has all of the terminology down and we we know exactly what to say in every scenario. It's really not the case. Um, There are plenty of occasions when I still have to remind myself, read through Stonewall's latest guidance on terminology. And just it is purely about being kind, being open to learn um, and actually being prepared to put in a little bit of effort to ensure that you don't um, misstep. And if you do misstep, um, either apologising or um, taking the time to educate why that was a misstep. And that's a nice thing I've noticed, uh, especially since I've been in Chambers and with other colleagues at the bar, people that are willing to say, would you mind telling me why we should have gender-neutral bathrooms? Would you mind having a conversation about why we need to use gender-neutral language in our constitution? Things such as that, um, where people are prepared to sit down and, uh, and be educated. It's common sense, if you ask me. <laughs> Just be kind, as you say, be open, be caring, be, and in particular be willing to learn. I, I completely agree that I do not know all the terminology. <laughs> I've got it wrong, and I will continue to get it wrong despite trying my best. But what should matter for everyone is that you try, and you be open, and you're caring. And from that, I think you can't ask any more. Well, thank you all of you for listening. Thank you all thank for you. talking. Thank you. Thank it's been you. really interesting to talk to you. It has. And goodbye from us. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.